Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. On today's program, nuclear colonialism and its impact on the Navajo Nation and the legacy of abandoned uranium mines to the proposal of a new high-level nuclear waste facility in New Mexico. And in the second part of our show, what is Freedom of the Press for Native American Nations. We speak with the two co-directors of a brand new documentary premiering at the Sundance Film Festival, Bad Press, the quest for the Muscogee Nation to establish the right and protection of freedom of the press. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone first part of our program today here on American Indian Airwaves, nuclear colonialism and its impact on Indian country. I have the honor and pleasure in this three-part interview on nuclear colonialism to speak with Leona Morgan from the Diné Navajo Nation. She is a longtime activist and community organizer who's been fighting nuclear colonialism since 2007. She attributes the adverse health impacts of her family and other indigenous peoples who live or have lived near uranium sites to the resulting radioactive exposure and contamination. Our guest's work includes helping to prevent new ISL or in pseudo leach uranium mine in Eastern Navajo Nation, the radiation monitoring project Hall No, and challenging Haltech's proposed nuclear waste dump in southeast New Mexico. Our guest co-founded and works with the Nuclear Issues Study Group and Diné No Nukes, which contributes to the Hall No Initiative. And she's worked with Radiation Monitoring Project, and she collaborates nationally and internationally with many groups to address the entire nuclear fuel chain in the United States and is part of a national campaign titled Don't Nuke the Climate, which focuses on nuclear energy as a global climate issue. Our guest is from the Diné Navajo Nation and is based out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. I had the honor and pleasure to speak with her on all of these issues that she's worked on and continues to work on tirelessly. I start the first part of this three-part interview on nuclear colonialism and its impact on Indian country and the direction of nuclear energy and nuclear power for the future and what it means for indigenous peoples and Mother Earth. We begin with what is nuclear colonialism? Well, there's 
different uh, definitions, I would say, um, depending on who you're talking to um, in academia or activists or, you know, in the community. I think the most simple, the simplest way to, to, to think about nuclear colonialism is, is basically the ongoing colonization of our, not just our land, water, and air, but also our genetics, our, because that goes into our future um, colonization of our, how we think about nuclear, um, everything that colonization has done to our people, you know, through the federal Indian period, which was outright, you know, genocide and theft of our land, to later where the federal Indian period, you know, turned to, toward assimilation and self-determination. I don't think it's mimicking that. But I'm using that as an example because we've seen that already and people understand that. I think with nuclear colonialism, because of the impact of radioactive contamination, which is invisible and, you know, you can't see it or feel it, it's, it's, it's really not a type of colonization people can understand unless they're living it. So, like, for example, on the Navajo Nation, we have a lot of impacts from uranium mining. So... Nuclear colonialism, you know, is taking the land for uranium mining, any nuclear production, really, nuclear waste storage, uh, which contaminates not just the, the, the soil and the water and the air, but anything that's also there. So if we have animals, plants, medicine, and of course, people. So this is this is one of the huge things that we're dealing with is the unknown impacts to human life, the long-lived impacts from the changes to our DNA from long-term, low-level ionizing radioactive ra exposure to radi ionizing radiation. So when we talk about radiation, there's all kinds of radiation. Today, I'm I'm really focusing on the impacts from radiation that comes from nuclear production along the whole nuclear fuel chain. So from uranium mining, processing, all the transportation, um, the fuel fabrication, and then whether it's used in weapons or energy, and then the, the waste um, from all of that. So thinking about the contamination from weapons, um, we've all heard about depleted uranium in Iraq. That is nuclear colonialism. Thinking about the nuclear testing on the babies, the, the pregnant women in the Marshall Islands, yeah. that is nuclear colonialism. Now looking at today, we're seeing a lot of propaganda about nuclear uh, energy. So of course, I'm not even going to go into nuclear weapons yet, because that's an obvious form of nuclear colonialism. Um, when you're talking about using uranium and nuclear energy for for weapons, because that's going to impact the whole world. But right now, going back to your question, what is impacting us most today, I think is this push for nuclear energy development as a fault solution to climate change. So right now, internationally, this is something that has been identified, let's say, in Europe, in Germany, in the last 20 years, they were getting ready to, sh they, they were, they have identified for a long time, the need to shut down nuclear energy, and they were about to do it in December 2022. So last month, uh, Germany was supposed to shut down all of their nuclear reactors for good. But because of what's going on in Ukraine with Russia and all of the 
the issues there. Um, there's so many impacts to their energy development that they decided to continue using nuclear, which is really devastating to me because that was kind of the poster child for, you know, shutting down nuclear. Mm. But in, in, in general, all of the nuclear reactors, they're very old. They need to be shut down. But there's a movement to extend them, so they call it life extension, which is basically just permitting it again, which is way beyond what those structures were built for. So, you know, it's very unsafe when, when they're getting old. And I, I would compare it to, like, you know, these some of these reactors that were built in the 70s and the 80s. I mean, how many people are driving their cars from the 70s and the 80s? So, I mean, maybe that's not the best example, but... The idea is, you know, wear and tear, these things break down. And um, as they get older, they're less and less safe. So we need to shut down all of the nuclear reactors, um, the old ones especially, store the waste on site until we figure out what to do with it. And that's the second issue I want to get to is the, the, the waste storage. Um, but going back to the current issue, this push for new nuclear it's just recently there's talk about fusion. I'm not going to talk about fusion, but right now there's this thing they call small modular reactors and small modular reactors or SMRs. Us uh, on the anti-nuclear side, we call them small modular nuclear reactors, so SMNRs, which are being funded and re there's a lot of research and funding going into them, but this is the, you know, these SMNRs are being touted as the future of nuclear energy. And, and the, the scary part for me is when they say this is going to save the climate. So there's a lot of propaganda like atoms. Back in the day, we heard atoms for peace. Now they're saying atoms for climate. Mm -hmm. So right now, people don't understand. Many, many people, I can, from my experience doing organizing on nuclear for a long time, a lot of folks in my opinion, they don't really care about nuclear. They just, you know, when you start saying nuclear or uranium or radiation, people, their eyes, you know, they kind of just stop paying attention. Or maybe it's because they don't understand it as well. But, And that's part of the colonization and assimilation to, you know, kind of brainwash us to not pay attention. So right now, I think this is one of the important things for people to understand that nuclear energy must, right now, the way the structure is set up, nuclear energy development uses fossil fuels and uranium mining, all of the processes that it takes from extraction to using nuclear energy at a nuclear power plant, it's fueled by fossil fuels, you know, the transportation, everything. So when they say nuclear energy is carbon free or carbon neutral, it's because they conveniently do not count everything before or after the nuclear power plant. So the people living in uranium country, you know, us in the West, people in Australia, Mongolia, you know, all these places in the world, um, Canada, and then several countries in Africa, they're, we're always going to be targeted whenever there's a push for new nuclear energy. But the other thing that's a constant threat is nuclear war. So because we have uranium in some desirable abundance because uranium is everywhere, but the uranium that's produced and extracted is predominantly on indigenous lands worldwide. So this is what nuclear colonialism is, is this ongoing push for taking, extracting, 
contaminating indigenous lands disproportionately, which of course overburdens the people there, but also has these long-lived effects that are generally not fully compensated or cleaned up. So the United States puts a lot of money into the military, but the cleanup, you know, the military is the, I think, the most polluting entity in the world, the U.S. military, you know, causing a lot of impacts to, to the climate, but yet they will fund that production and pollution, but not the cleanup on our people's land. So we're still dealing with a lot of the contamination. I know you asked this one question and the, it's not a simple answer, but yeah, I think, um, I guess just to summarize, nuclear colonialism is the ongoing, you know, theft, genocide, destruction, and, you know, basically all of the impacts of colonization, but for the use of uranium in nuclear weapons and energy. So when you talk about nuclear weapons, that goes hand in hand with U.S. imperialism and nuclear energy. Actually, you really can't have the two separately. People like to separate nuclear energy and nuclear weapons and say that there's a peaceful use of nuclear, which they say in Japan. A lot of times this is the, you know, the division that people have is not just within the industry and the government to separate it, but also within the anti-nuclear movement. Some activists, um, again, I'm going to point to Japan, are okay with nuclear energy, but totally against nuclear weapons. So for us in uranium, in the places where uranium is, it, it really doesn't matter what it's used for because the radioactive contamination is, is still here and our people are, you know, we've had, not me personally, I, I live, I don't live on the reservation right now, but my family has been impacted. Um, it's well documented. We've seen the impacts from this radioactive contamination, but it's, again, it's an invisible pervasive, slow genocide for nuclear production. Leona, when we talk about uranium mining and the legacy of uranium mining, not sometimes folks may associate uranium mining with the Manhattan Project and the development and the usage right, of atomic weapons uh, during World War II. And you also have right, the legacy of uranium mining going back to, say, for example, 1979, where the largest radioactive spill in U.S. history occurred on the Navajo Nation at Church Rock Mill on July 16th of 1979, and the spill released more than a thousand tons of radioactive waste and 94 million gallons of radioactive tailings or fluid that left many homes and water sources with elevated levels of radiation. And so when we're talking about nuclear colonialism, uranium mining and abandoned uranium mining. Can you unpack that further and what that means for folks back home? And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Leona Morgan, a longtime Diné Navajo activist on nuclear colonialism, its history, its legacy, where we are now, and the future of Mother Earth and its impact on indigenous peoples. And now back to the interview. Um, sure. Uh, well, just, just to go back a little bit more, you mentioned um, the Manhattan Project, and the, the uranium for the Manhattan Project actually came from a place in the Democratic Republic 
of the Congo um, back then they were it was the Belgian Congo and it was from a mine called Shinkolobwe uranium mine and so this uranium was very potent it had a very high ore grade um, they say it was about 65% uranium mm. which is which is very significant because um, right now I'm you know with a group uh, an initiative we call Hall No. So Hall No, we're we're fighting the transportation or the hauling of uranium at the Grand Canyon, and that ore is less than one percent uranium. Um, and so that's what we're dealing with today is is mining these little bits of uranium, which produces mostly radioactive waste. Mm. But the uranium that came from Shinkolobwe was was so radioactive that it left a trace of radioactivity all over. And so this is something I've learned over the years that this uranium, you know, it was used in the Manhattan Project and, and most folks don't know about it. And so this is kind of the, um, there's an organization I'm in touch with, uh, the Congolese Civil Society of South Africa. Um, they are, this is their mission to make this world known that Shinkolobwe uranium mine was the source of that uranium and their story, much like ours, as Diné people, they haven't, they, we, as Diné people, we have, you know, like I said, things are well documented. We have the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. We have some cleanup of uranium mines. We have a lot of things happening. Over there, they, this mine is so rural that it's out of sight, out of mind. You know, there's not a lot of regulatory oversight. The stories we hear about our miners that were not informed about the, the dangers, you know, not protected, you know, the same, but much, much worse over there, you know, mining with their bare hands. And so the legacy of uranium mining, um, I want to just highlight Shinkolobwe uranium mine in DRC. This is an old, an old mine. I'm, I don't know the status of the cleanup. I'm sure it's just been abandoned. I don't think they're, I don't think many folks know about it. Um, yeah. I've never been there, but I understand you. It's, 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 you know, like I said, it's very remote. And recently, um, because I've been in touch with folks in different parts of the world, I'm not sure if they want to restart the mine, but there's also been talk about in the DRC starting up an old nuclear power plant that's, I guess, in the capital, it's the Kinshasa nuclear power plant. But I just wanted to highlight that because we talk all the time about Navajo Nation and Navajo uranium miners, which, which, which is important, but there's uranium miners all over the world that don't have nearly as much recognition or legal recourse that, that our people have been able to fight for. So like I started in 2007, I think is when I really tell people this is when I began and you know my fight was after I started after I finished college but the mine I was fighting uh, Navajo it is back in 2006 um, the price of uranium went up very high and so all of these companies wanted to start mining um, they, they, they wanted to use you know old old uranium mine sites where there was already uranium you know to try to reopen them in 2000 I got involved with a group that was fighting an in, in, in situ leach uranium mine, which is a different type of mine. 
we can talk about that as well. It's um, it's it's more like solution mining. It, it is solution mining. I don't want to say it's like fracking. People say it's like fracking. It's it's not really like fracking, but the idea of pumping stuff into the earth, getting you know, extracting the minerals you want that way, and then pumping up the solution again, it's similar in that way, and and also in the ways that you're impacting what's below the earth without you you have no idea what you're doing down there because ISL mining is basically extracting out of the aquifer so you deliberately contaminate the aquifer in order to take the uranium out and the company says well your aquifer is already contaminated so you know we're they didn't say we're cleaning it but they told my government I remember in a meeting they said you already have uranium down there so what we're going to do is we're going to take out all that yucky uranium for you and essentially kind of selling this idea that it's going to be better afterward. But um, that's the, that's when I got involved. I was fighting a in-situ leach uranium mine in the Church Rock area. And I got involved when um, it was like everywhere there was a push for new mining. And so there was a lot of activism. There was a lot of community pushback uh, resistance not just in uranium areas, but, you know, in a lot of places, people remember the impact. And so we were not just fighting it, you know, on the res and in places like Grants, New Mexico, but like in Santa Fe at the state legislature, um, my first experience lobbying was on a uranium bill. So anyways, to go back to your question, I'm just kind of giving you some background where I came in. I started doing work on an ISL mine, Mm. but... I learned the history of the abandoned uranium mines. I learned about nuclear energy um, much later, and then I learned about nuclear waste. So it's very, it's not a simple subject, and maybe that's why people don't really want to pay attention. It took a long time for me to understand a lot of these things. I mean, the simple thing is the contamination makes people sick. And when I was doing the work on the reservation, mostly between I started in 2007 learning and getting involved, but between 2011 and 2014, I was constantly driving around, going to meetings, presenting, you know, trying to stop this, this ISL mine. People didn't really care about the ISL mine as much, maybe because it hadn't happened yet. Everybody vote, like I was going around asking people to oppose it, you know, to sign resolutions. And they were like, okay, sure. That was a, Slam dunk, no brainer. Everybody's like, no new mining. That was the simplest thing. Nobody, nobody challenged it unless there was a couple communities where there was some, you know, some folks had a stake in uranium. They're mostly allottees. The people who have an interest in an Indian allotment, those are the folks that wanted uranium mining. But everybody else, they were like, no. The thing they cared about and the thing they kept asking me about was what's going to happen to me? When that spill happened, I was a little kid and I was playing in that water. Or what's going to happen to my family when that spill happened? All of our sheep were there eating the grass and we didn't know for a long time and we ate those sheep. And it's just these, all these questions people kept asking about their health. And I'm this kid driving around the res like, I don't know. You know, I had no clue. People were asking me. And then there was like elders. Almost every chapter house I went to, it was, you know, predominantly Diné-speaking people. Mm. So here I am, this kid out of college. Well, I had been out of college for a while, but I didn't have real life experience, I guess. And so I was trying to go back to the res and 
and ask people to support this political issue when I didn't know that these decades of suffering and all of the stuff they had gone through. And so they were, they already lived it. And so they're asking me, well, how do I get RECA? How do I, can you help me apply for my RECA application? Um, what, so they, all the stuff I was trying to bring was new information to oppose a new mind. And, and then I started to realize this, this is the community. All of these places were, were places that people, there was a lot of cancer. There was, you know, miscarriages. Um, people had a lot of stories, you know, a lot of people saying, oh, my uncle, my dad. Um, and then, you know, me, I was a minor. I worked at the mill. I used to do this. I saw this, you know, people telling you stories about all the things that happened. And um, I didn't know what to do with it. But this is how I got involved and what I learned about how I got educated was just being in the community. And then later I started to travel and go literally all over the world seeing other sites. But at home on the Navajo Nation, on the res, my family were from eastern Navajo. That's in the Crown Point area. And so the, the, part, the, the different parts of the res that were mine, they, the U.S. government, um, they divided it up into different regions. And so um, I'll get into that later where how they, you know, kind of were doing the cleanup. But my family, um, being in the eastern side, we're kind of not too close to Gallup, but I would say if anyone knows New Mexico, like kind of halfway between Gallup and Grants, but north of the freeway. So like the interstate I-40 goes east-west and then the railroad goes along the interstate. So for for the uranium, that was the you know way they transported it. And Grants, Grants is along the railroad, um, Gallup, and Church Rock. In Navajo, the name for Church Rock is Kintletul, which means yellow house. And that is because of the yellow railroad. I don't know if, the, if it was the railroad cars or maybe the workers lived in these yellow houses. But yeah, so Church Rock was, um, is along the railroad. And like you mentioned, the, the spill. So that was one of the areas that was really impacted as well as like Shiprock, uh, Monument Valley, Tuba City. So this is just my res. I mean, there was uranium mining all over the country and all over the world. But for, for Navajo Nation, they identified 523 abandoned uranium mines. But when I was out there, like I said, and, and it still happens today when I go home and go to meetings, people are constantly telling you about this site here, this place mm -hmm you know, that they played at, or they know this is where the company came and they did a exploratory drilling and they never capped the well. And that's just like a constant thing. So when you hear like, oh, the government said there's 523 sites, it's like, yeah, right. I mean, who knows how many there are. The, the industry, they didn't want to clean up all of their mess. You know, they didn't, I'm sure they documented where, or wherever they found a profit, but that same documentation could have been used for cleanup and they didn't want to pay for the cleanup, you know. So I am convinced there is documentation, maybe it was burned by now, where we could have had a list of all the places where the companies did these things because, you know, they're trying to get their profit. They want money. So, of course, they're going to document where they put holes in the ground. But today, right now, what we're dealing with is thousands. We estimate that the U.S. EPA estimates 15,000 abandoned uranium mines across the country because 
the laws to clean up uranium mining or milling didn't exist until much later after uranium mining and milling was happening. So the Manhattan Project was in the 40s. The EPA or the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, that wasn't passed until 1969. And then the EPA started in the 70s. So before that, whatever the states had, you know, I'm, I'm sure they didn't have uranium regulations uh, back in the 40s. Right. So they probably had whatever general mining things. But when we talk about like the Clean, Clean Water Act or, you know, what's the legal limit of uranium and drinking water, that didn't come till much later. So all of the laws to clean up and to regulate contamination, because they, they didn't exist yet, basically all of the mess that was created is, is it was abandoned. So thousands of mines and places all over the country where uranium companies since the forties through, and I don't know for each state, but you know, it was a few decades before the EPA, you know, really started. So the forties and the fifties was, well, the fifties really, I think is when the boom people say there was this uranium boom. And from the fifties and the sixties, it was a very like, um, for some folks, a very nostalgic time when they had a lot of money and, you know, they think of like Grants, New Mexico as the, the uranium capital of the world. It was the town was jumping and people have this real nostalgia for that economic boom. Mm-hmm. But of course, there's the bust cycle. So it started to peter out the uranium industry, um, the mining boom in the 70s. And that's actually right when nuclear energy started. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with longtime indigenous Diné activist Leona Morgan on nuclear colonization and its impact on Indian country and Mother Earth. And now back to the interview. And then you have the Cold War. Um, So we in New Mexico... Um, uranium mining really declined in the 80s and on the Navajo Nation um, as well. And so this is just a general history. And then after that, we didn't really mine a lot. And the mining, it still kept going like in South Dakota and all of these other places. There is ISO mining up there, Nebraska. There is uranium mining all over. Right now, there's no uranium mining in New Mexico. And the Navajo Nation has a law against it. Um, since 2005, also a law against transportation of new uranium uh, production or radioactive um, materials since 2012. But yeah, so because there's new, no new mining, you know, that's, 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 that's been great for me. I've been very happy that we haven't had any new mining. But the push, you know, to clean up all the old mines, that has been very slow. Um, right now, when I, again, when I started back in 2007, uh, uranium was a big topic because of the price. The price per pound had gone above $130 per pound. Um, there's this, with inflation and everything, I don't know what the numbers are, but there's this loose threshold that we've been um, activists and people watching uranium that we use, which is to look at the price of uranium. Um, and they say about around about $70 per pound is, like the threshold they need to make a profit. So as long as uranium is 
less than $70 per pound, you know, that it's not profitable. But as soon as Russia invaded Ukraine, the price of uranium went up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we actually get before, like before all of this started with um, Russia and Ukraine, I mentioned, you know, uranium uh, production declined in the 80s um, after the Cold War. Uh, we actually started getting a lot of our uranium from Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, so now that's not happening. <laughs> and we need to figure out, you know, if people, well, I don't think we need to figure out where to get uranium from. I think we need to stop using uranium. But the United States, you know, they um, were pushing for uranium to be classified as a critical mineral for domestic energy production. Um, again, I think it's just a guise to continue production for war efforts and, and U.S. imperialism. Um, but that's just me. So anyways, this whole thing with abandoned uranium mines, going back to your question, uh, the United States, they um, have no law to clean up the 15,000 plus abandoned uranium mines. And again, it's probably much more than that. In 2007, uh, let me me look at the date real quickly. There was, a while back, there was this thing called the Waxman hearings. So so Representative Waxman from California, um, he had read in uh, the LA Times um, some, some articles about uranium and he actually started to learn about uranium and pushed for these hearings, um, which prompted for what they call the five-year cleanup plan. So Henry Waxman, um, he held these congressional hearings in 2007 um, to hear, hear about this problem. And so I, I wish I went. I, um, I just started working with INDOM, the Eastern Navajo Against Uranium Mining, so there was a couple of folks who went and, um, you know, different people went to testify in Washington, D.C. So long story short, that led to some funding of cleanup on Navajo Nation of abandoned uranium mines. Mm. So, so any mines that occurred, you know, after regulations existed, you know, they're supposed to clean up. And ideally, you would think they would clean up to pre-mining conditions. So when you talk about cleanup, it's not, there's no one size fits all. Depending what agency you're dealing with, EPA or DOE, NRC, um, depending what state you're in, depending, yeah, state or federal. And then also um, what years the operation took place. Mm. That will all depend on which laws are used and where the funding comes for cleanup. So it's incredibly complicated. And that was Leona Morgan of the Diné Nation. She's a longtime activist. She was speaking on nuclear colonialism and the legacy of uranium mining in the Diné or Navajo Nation. Tune in next week for part two of our series on nuclear colonialism as we continue the conversation on the legacy of uranium mining and Holtec International's proposal to build a nuclear waste dump in southeastern New Mexico. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. There is Cordell and me and Norman Brown Sitting around, away from town And me, I'm listening, hey, 
old big mountain guys Watch the sunrise in your eyes Taking care of the elders' pride Hey, hey, Mother Earth Hey, hey, Father Sky And me I've watched it grow Corporate greed and a lust for gold And coal and oil And hey, now uranium Keep the Indians under your thumb Pray like hell when your bad times come Hey, rip em up, strip em up, get em with a gun She was a friend of mine And May in the snows of the winter time We were running across the fields of Indian land Ducking bullets from the guns of a pale man whoa, whoa, whoa. Patriot woman Hunted in the land what did you say about uranium? She come to see me one day I was living in a little place in LA She was running from the feel of the Taylor's touch Singing me hey, oh, I think I know so much about uranium And a lust for gold and coal and oil and hey now uranium. Keep the Indians under your thumb. Pray like hell when your bad times come. Hey, rip them up, strip them up, get them with a gun. The song The Uranium War by Buffy St. Marie here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of today's program, I have the honor and pleasure to speak with Becca Lansbury-Baker from the Muscogee Nation and Joe Peeler. They are co-directors of a brand new documentary premiering at the Sundance Film Festival from January 22nd to January 27th in Park City, Utah. The documentary Bad Press chronicles the quest in self-determination for Muscogee citizens to establish the right to freedom of the press within the Muscogee Nation. There are only five federally recognized nations that have freedom of the press protections in their constitution, which makes this story so powerful. And now, Becca Lansbury-Baker and Joe Peeler on Bad Press. And Larry, just again, thanks at the top for, you know, your, like Joe said, the, you know, kind of audience that we were, you know, hoping one of the audiences that would see this in Indian country. And I think for, you know, my background as a, 
a citizen of the Muskogee Creek Nation and as a former tribal media editor and journalist myself, you know, this is my community. This is where I'm from, from, from Oklahoma, and I still have deep ties to the reservation and to tribal media in my role as the current executive director of the Native American Journalists Association. So that's my full-time gig, so I try to stay really plugged into you know, what's happening with free press in Indian country, and uh, we talk about that issue a lot and how important it is to, you know, supporting the idea that the free press supports tribal sovereignty, you know, in our communities. And so it provides accountability to the citizens and to the, the government officials and what they are doing. And so, um, again, I think tribal media and Indian country is so important and the work that you're doing, you know, is, is, is important and it's part of that. So I think when we're considering the audiences for the story, you know, that's the big takeaway for my uh, fellow Muskogee citizens and my mm -hmm. fellow, you know, tribal journalists that are working and covering Indian country is that, you know, that really the tribal politicians and the journalists in our story, they're mm -hmm. all doing the same thing. It's all in service of protecting and strengthening tribal sovereignty, they're just going at it in two different ways. So you have, you know, the tribal politics or the tribal politicians who, you know, want to keep things opaque. They, we don't need to air our dirty laundry. And then the journalists obviously take the other stance that we have to do this. We have to, you know, share information as widely as possible. And our citizens need to know and be informed and educated, especially as we're going into an election season in the Muskogee Creek Nation, they need this information. It's essential. It's a, a service to the citizens. And so um, that's something that was really important for me as a tribal citizen myself to highlight how, you know, the work that the tribal journalists are doing are supporting tribal sovereignty, even if it's not always seen that way by the politicians and by the citizens themselves to some, you know, extent. Let me ask, um, is it your background that, led you to um, making this film with, and with Joe. And Joe, I want to ask how you fit into uh, the story. <laughs> you know, how did you guys, both of you connect and, and what led to telling the story? Yeah, well, uh, I'll just say that um, I'm friends with uh, Garrett, who is our producer and Becca's husband. And uh, Garrett and Becca approached me after the repeal of Free Press in 2018 and kind of said, you know, this is what we think is a story ne that needs to be told, and we don't want it to be swept under the rug, and what do you think? And I was immediately drawn to it, I think, because obviously Becca is a preeminent expert on freedom of press in, the, uh, in Indian country and runs the Native American Journalist Association uh, that deals a lot with that issue and is completely an insider in the tribe. And I feel like I was uh, and am a kind of politically engaged regular white guy <laughs> and uh, did not know anything about the issue at all. And so that kind of initially perked my, perked my interest. And uh, within about a week, I was out in Oklahoma filming with Angel and really meeting Angel is what solidified my interest in the project, just seeing her passion and her humor and the kind of willingness to go out on a limb to, uh, for the betterment of her citizens, I think. That was really what kind of struck me initially 
um, as something that I would, I, I think I could pursue as a project with Becca. Becca, did you want to add? Yeah, no, just again, um, I think Joe and I make such a great team uh, with my connection to the story and the community. Mm -hmm. Like, again, this was my story that I was like, we have to tell this. And being, you know, not having experience in documentary filmmaking to this point, it just was such a natural, like, fit and partnership Mm -hmm. with Joe and his experience and on the technical side as an editor, Mm -hmm. you know, as uh, someone that was a documentarian and had those skills that we needed. It was just such a great fit. And um, I also always like to point out that uh, Joe really makes this a cinematic and beautiful story, and our editor Gene Ream, of course, is part of that, and it's uh, telling the story from the um, edit day. But really, I think our our expertise in each of those areas really complements each other, and so we, I think, made a, a pretty good co-directing team. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Becca Lansbury Baker and Joe Peeler co-directors of the brand new documentary Bad Press. It's premiering at the Sundance Film Festival and the documentary chronicles the struggle for establishing the freedom of the press in the Muscogee Nation within Oklahoma. And now back to the interview. What I'm hearing from you, Becca, is allyship in, in, yes. make, in making yes. this art, right? We're non-Native people uh, working mm-hmm. with Native people in the context of allyship and, and really helping uplift, in this case, right, uh, Muscogee uh, citizens and Muscogee media's uh, voices in the struggle for free press. And mm-hmm. Joe mentioned Angel, and I was wondering, can you tell our audience who Angel Ellis is in relationship to the documentary Bad Press? Uh, absolutely. So Angel Ellis is our main subject and a participant of this film. And I am so glad to, again, I worked with her previously in the newsroom. And so I knew, you know, her personality and how just magnetic she is. And so I think, you know, Joe experienced that when he, he flew in basically the same week we told him about the, um, you know, about wanting to do this film um, and flew in by himself to, and met Angel, like, later that week. Like, we told him, like, on a Monday, and by, like, Friday, he was on a flight <laughs> out uh, to meet Angel. Yeah. And I think it, instantly he was hooked and knew, like, once he met Angel, like, she was going to be the heart of our story and, you know, our our leader in this fight for free press and just, like, humanize it in a way that, you know, just wouldn't have been possible if we were following anyone else. And so she's really just, like, such an amazing uh, character, but an amazing human being. And I think, you know, we're watching her, we're watching Jared um, as they're dealing with really stressful situations and big issues, um, including, you know, free press, censorship, um, elections fraud, you know, so they're doing this, trying to cover it, trying to do their jobs as journalists, but also, you know, cracking jokes, chain smoking, you know, cursing, (laughs) just all the things that are happening in a real, you know, any newsroom anywhere, but we're also getting to see, you know, native humor and native joy. And so I'm, I was very excited to be able to, you know, share this story and share Angel's story. And so, so thankful that she trusted me as, as her friend and former colleague and now, you know, as a documentarian to let us follow her around for, <laughs> for three or four years now um, and be part of this, this story and lead this fight. So I'm just so thankful for her in so many ways, but she's just 
I couldn't have asked for a more interesting and funny, you know, protagonist for the film. You know, when I watched the film, you know, one of the things I really appreciated was just uh, the commitment by Muskogee citizens and community members, um, just in general, but also everybody that worked uh, at Muskogee Media. So when there was, right, the repeal of the Press Act, right, people resigned in Mm -hmm. protest and, and it just wasn't one or two people, it was a majority of the people, you know, working there. And, and I know we want folks to watch Bad Press. And for our listeners, um, they can also they can watch this documentary online from January 24th to January 29th of 2023. Or if they're there in person, right, they can uh, mm-hmm. watch Absolutely. it between January 22nd and 27th, <laughs> of course. And, and we want folks to to watch the documentary. And without sounding too cliche, there's so many things when it comes to to Native folks and Indigenous peoples when we talk about the first. And, and the legacy of documentary filmmaking and indigenous media, including uh, documentary films. To me, this is the first documentary that really tackles the hard issue of what freedom of the press looks like for Native American nations, specifically the struggle for indigenous media for the Muscogee Nation. Is that a fair characterization? And and in your thoughts in relationship to both of your contributions in producing uh, this art? Yeah, Larry, that's such a great question. And I'm so glad that you are like, <laughs> like seeing this bigger picture because it is something we haven't talked about a whole lot. Yeah. But I wholly agree with your you know assessment that there are so many beautiful, like culturally focused documentaries in Indian country. And I, you know, I've not experienced a lot on the other side of it that deal with the grittier, like, you know, let's just say the word, you know, corruption in some instances that exists within tribal governments. And, you know, how do we, how do we deal with that? Like, you know, it is dirty laundry. And I think that there's this, you know, conflict, even within myself and like personally of, you know, wanting to make the tribe, you know, look really good in the press, but also, you know, not wanting to, you know, diminish the, the good work that they're doing because the, it's, a, it's a two-sided coin for sure. And so I, I do think that our documentary, more than any that I've seen for sure, you know, addresses an issue that we don't really talk about in Indian country. We don't really you know, explore the dirty side of tribal politics, but it's there. And not just in Muskogee Creek Nation, but, you know, in lots of federally recognized tribes, state recognized tribes, you know, not only here in the U.S., but in, you know, indigenous communities throughout North America. So it's it's something that is happening, and, you know, we're not talking about it. So, again, I'm just very grateful for this opportunity to share the story and to share it through the lens of the journalists who are, you know, taking on this fight every single day and, you know, facing these really unique challenges head on. So I'm, again, very just very thankful for that opportunity um, to share their, you know, side of this <laughs> very nuanced story. Well, and I think, too, the honesty of this story um, is equally or just as challenging if we compare it to the legacy of settler colonial media, whether it be news Mm -hmm. or entertainment media and the representation 
of Native Americans and 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 how to put it in a very sanitized way and how problematic that has been and continues to be on so many levels. Is that a, a fair characterization? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you talk about freedom of the press again, it's very a nuanced issue when we're talking about it in Indian country. And right. you know, just the as tribal citizens of uh, the Muscogee Creek Nation and of Indian nations generally here, you know, one of the things we talk about in the movie is like how young our actual like, you know, right. governing documents are the, for the Muscogee Creek Nation, right. you know, back in the, the late 70s, is, you know, when we put our uh, constitution that we're operating, you know, under and, the, you know, a lot of that language is adopted from, you know, other like the U.S. Constitution, but some of it's not. So I think there's, been, again, like kind of this opportunity because a lot of our uh, current and modern tribal democracies are, you know, so young, we still have the opportunity to make tweaks and make changes, and one citizen, you know, as we can see, can make a difference, all the difference, when it comes to uh, affecting change within our, our tribal communities if the fight is there. And so it's it's really exciting, but also, you know, just something we want to be, you know, very mindful of and, and um, making sure that, that citizens are educated and informed and when they go to the polls that they have all the information that's, that's available to them because they can make these big decisions and there's still that opportunity to, you know, be a part of the democratic process. And I think free press is just so essential to that. A question for both of you. When it comes to the documentary, and congratulations again on its uh, premiere at Sundance, and I hope it continues to manifest in success and outreach to both Native and and non-Native people. Sorry, that was a colonial reference uh, or word there. I didn't mean to use it that way. But uh, part of decolonizing, uh, part of decolonization, right? Reclaiming and repurposing these colonial terms. But what do you want uh, uh, listeners and viewers who can watch uh, Bad Press um, or see it if they have the good fortune to attend the Sundance Film Festival, but can watch it online? What would both for both of you, what would you like community uh, members and ally members and people just hearing this interview? What would you like them to take away in watching Bad Press? I, I think the thing that comes to mind is something that Graham Brewer said to us in an interview. He's a Cherokee reporter, and he had a very simple line that he told us, which was that Native people are modern people. Too often, they're looked upon as something that happened in the past or people who, you know, there was the NPR uh, poll that some huge percentage of people think that indigenous peoples have gone extinct um, <laughs> and that they're, uh, that native people are modern people dealing with the troubles of their modern government, dealing with press, dealing with things that the citizenry at large are also dealing with. Mm-hmm. I thought that was such like a simple idea that a lot of people don't really think about. And I think that really informed our filmmaking. Mm. And Becca? Answered, yeah. <laughs> uh, I would just add to that that, you know, I'm excited to showcase the diversity that's here within mm. Indian country, that's within the Muscogee Creek Nation. And, you know, for people that are not familiar with, you know, the inner workings of tribal politics in Indian country, 
just to show how, you know, our what's happening, you know, at this level is a microcosm, but again, just showcasing the native humor that has always been here in our <laughs> communities and share that with a wider audience. I'm just so excited for people to like laugh alongside our, our journalists and laugh at their jokes and just be, you know, with us for a moment in, you know, in this world that I love so much and that's like so much a part of me. So I'm I'm very excited to to share that and um, to have people hopefully enjoy the ride. The moment of silence is over. And that was Becca Lansbury-Baker and Joe Peeler, co-directors of the brand new documentary, Bad Press, premiering at the Sundance Film Festival. If you want to watch the documentary online, you can visit the Sundance Film Festival website at sundance.org. That concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest, Leona Morgan, Becca Lansbury-Baker, and Joe Peeler. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Buffy St. Marie, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studios of Burnt Swamp Studios in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. And for the innocent, you can't justify why your freedom manifests on their graves. And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds, nor the hands that hold the chains. is over.